This podcast is brought to you by the San Francisco Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. Hi, I'm Alana. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Alana. I'm stand so I can see everybody. <laughs> so um, make eye contact. Um, let's see. I was looking at my um, sobriety calculator on my iPhone. I have a, a sobriety calculator I put in my first date of abstinence, which for me is really the first date that I came in to program because I've been one of those people who like I got it the minute I came in that this was my solution. My abstinence has changed and evolved, but I've been abstinent for almost like fourteen hundred days. I was looking at the, it tells you how many hours, weeks, months <laughs> three point five five years. And um, and I've been abstinent from the foods that were really clearly my alcoholic foods from the get-go from day one haven't taken them back and the freedom that I've gotten from them in this program is greater than any other of the gifts that I received uh, coming to OA Um, so I guess I'll just follow the usual format what happened what it you know what it was like what happened what it's like now so what it was like um, it was about six months before my 40th birthday and I was rejoining a commercial weight loss program for the fifth time um, I've heard this shared, this is not mine, I, I'm, I'm not original, I, I, I heard someone say recently I dieted my way up to <laughs> 238 pounds, um, and so every time I rejoined this program I was like another 50 plus pounds from where I had started the last time, and um, I knew it wasn't going to work, I knew I couldn't stop eating. I knew that that program had a food plan that would work if I could follow it, but I knew I couldn't follow it, and I had no idea why. And that was, like, the biggest source of anxiety and frustration because I was raised to believe that I could do anything I wanted to. I put my mind to it. I came from a family that was really supportive. I wasn't, you know, I didn't come from an abusive background or, you know, I I did have compulsive overeaters in my family. Surprise, surprise. I really believe that this is a disease, that it's a genetics, and it's also learned behavior. I really believe that this is a physical allergy and an emotional or mental health issue for me. I am compulsive in the eating behavior, but I can be compulsive in other behavior um, that I have, which became more clear when I put down some of the food. Um, But I also believe, for me, there's very much a physical reaction in my body to some of the foods that I was addicted to. So it doesn't surprise me that when I stopped taking them into my body, that my cravings for those foods was lessened. I am a huge believer in the doctor's opinion in the big book. For those of you who are, I don't think there's anyone here who's super new, anyone here has not yet read the doctor's opinion, or if you don't really remember what it says, read it again whenever you feel the food calling pick it up and read it, that's what I do, and I, um, I, I go, oh yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me, you know, I, I, um, my abstinence has evolved as I learn about those foods in my life, there were some when I came in that were very clearly foods I was addicted to, I used to joke about it, I don't know if we say names of foods in this meeting, but I used to laugh and joke with my friends and say, oh, wheat thins are crack cocaine for me. They were cracked cocaine for me. I wanted them more than I probably wanted any drug in my life. And from an early age, at the, age, the youngest I can remember, 
you know, snack crackers um, being mm-hmm. an issue for me is when I would sneak at sleepovers at friends' houses because my mother was a compulsive eater and my grandmother died at the age of 48 of diabetes and obesity. And mm-hmm. she was, I never knew her. She, my mother was pregnant with me and I'm named after her. But I know she was a compulsive eater and my mother couldn't have those kinds of things in the house. So me being... Um, a budding young addict of those foods, I would go to friends' houses and raid their cupboards. I was I look forward to going over to friends, not so much to spend time with them, but to see what their mothers had in their cupboards. And then when it was like nighttime and the parents were asleep, you know, we'd sneak down and we'd raid the cupboards and I would like go for the, the crackers. And at my own house, I would, as soon as I was old enough to get an allowance, um, we had a little corner market down the street from my house. And I was old enough to walk down the street. I must have been probably eight, maybe seven or eight, where my parents weren't like constantly watching what I was doing outside the house. And we lived in a really kind of cool neighborhood where kids could run around outside and unsupervised and several blocks away from home. And my father would whistle, literally like this loud whistle. When it was time to come home, we'd hear him come home, like calling in the the troops. But Mm -hmm. I would go down to the corner quick pick. I remember it well. And this is when candy costs like a nickel for a candy bar and a dime for a really big candy bar and I took my $2.50 that I earned taking out trash and doing other chores my parents asked me to and I stockpiled those candies like whatever was I could get the most for that two fifty, and I would hide it in my drawer because if I did it my mother would eat it <laughs> I didn't want her to eat my candy and she didn't want me to have it because she she could see those behaviors in me my grandmother who um was a wonderful woman, the one who I did get to know, my father's mother, um, she would bring us candy. She came every Friday night for Friday night dinner to my parents' house, my my mother's father and my father's mother, and she would bring candy, and my mother would immediately confiscate it. Like, you can't give the girls those things. that You know, like, she, she recognized poison <laughs> for her children, but it made me want it even more. It was like the mystery of it, you know. So... The evidence points to the <laughs> fact that I was an early, you know, I had an addictive gene in my in my genetics. And then um, going on, you know, to leaving my parents' home and going trying to feed myself, going to college, um, you know, the freshman 20, they don't call it the freshman 20 for nothing. It's a bunch of kids out of their parents' homes suddenly facing buffets at dorms, you know, when you go to sleepaway college and you're not living at home. And that was like the best thing that I thought could have ever happened to me, a buffet of endless cereal, chocolate milk, ice cream dispensers, you know, and it was like prepaid. It wasn't like you had a voucher and you got one meal. You could eat endlessly. That was like a death sentence for a compulsive overeater. And mm-hmm. I didn't really recognize it, but I knew that I couldn't stop. And I gained the weight, and I started that cycle of really trying to diet and lose the weight. I started that as early as 12 years of age. I was told by a loving family member, a friend of my mother's, that I was such a wonderful and lovely girl. If only I could lose 20 pounds, I would be perfect. And I, this sticks with me. Like I must have been 11 I couldn't have been more than 11 because we moved away from that city when I was 11 and a half. So maybe 10. And so that stuck with me that I wasn't okay. That sense of not okayness in my body was kind of pervasive. But my hair was curly and everybody had straight hair like Farrah Fawcett. You know, I tried to straighten my hair my whole life. Finally, they invented mousse and I stopped trying to straighten my hair. Mm-hmm. But I was not okay. And that sense of not okay was mostly about about weight when I got to college. And... 
So it was that perpetual dieting, not good enough, not trying to, you know, not feeling okay in my body and also not feeling okay in my social interactions and dating and all of that was really difficult. And in fact, it got to the point where I wouldn't look in the mirror. Um, Oh, I forgot. I have pictures. (laughs) So you can see what a normal-looking child I was and a potentially normal-looking teenager and college kid. Actually, look at those pictures. I haven't weighed that weight. I am probably about 15 pounds away from weighing the weight I was maybe in high school, and I haven't weighed that in almost, you know, 35 years. Yeah, I'm 43 right now. So anyway, what happened? Um, So I I was yo-yo dieting, and I didn't know what else to do because my family, that's how they did it. They were compulsive eaters. They'd gain and lose 50. My mother hit 48. She realized she was the age she was when her mother died. She was 50 pounds overweight. She freaked out. She joined commercial weight loss program, and she and my father had a tremendous amount of willpower, and I believe the two of them were a fellowship. Like, they had that fellowship together. They were each other's support, and they were able to get the weight down and to keep it off, whereas I resented the hell out of them because I couldn't. And, they, you know, everything was counting calories, weighing in, counting how many slices of low-calorie bread this food was an equivalent. I, like, it may, I may be like, like the opposite, you know, I wanted to rebel against that. And so when, as an adult, you know, after college, facing having to go to one of those programs to try to control my food, I resented it, I didn't want to do it. I hated that group, and I didn't know what else to do. So I went, and I failed, and I hated myself, and I went, and I failed, and, I, and it went so on and so forth. And that self-abuse, I don't, I don't have that anymore. That's what happened in this program. I don't hate myself if I have a slip. I don't hate myself if I'm not perfect with my food plan. I don't micromanage my food. I don't try to diet. I don't try to control it. The food is a symptom of the underlying problem. And that's what this program has taught me, that it's a three-pronged or three-legged stool or whatever you want to call it. It's physical disease, it's emotional, and it's spiritual. And I had the spiritual emptiness because I came from a family that was somewhat agnostic. Um, family of, uh, well, my father's family was Holocaust survivors and had rejected God. Um, my mother... Um, had some belief in God, but it wasn't something that was strongly imparted to me. And so, as a Jewish teenager, when I started critically thinking about things around the age of 12, and they consider you an adult and you have your bat mitzvah and you have to start thinking about God, I was like, you know, I really don't believe in God because if there was a God, how could all these bad things have happened in the world? How could all these children be starving in other countries right now, right here? How could, you know, genocide happen and over and over again, not just to my people, but to people in other parts of the world, even like now it's happening. And so I blamed God for all those things, and I fired God. And so I was like, okay, so I don't have God, and I, I didn't have a spirituality is what I did. I cut myself off, and I thought that I had to micromanage my own life. I had to take care of every little detail. It was on my shoulders. I had to figure it all out. I had to know what was going to happen. If I didn't know what was going to happen, I was extremely stressed out, and I was trying to control things, and I had no... I was powerless and trying to be in control. Right? Sound familiar? <laughs> so that's what it was like. It was like, coming to the program, I... Um, what happened? I um, fell in love, that partner, who didn't. And then um, started having some family issues in our relationship. We went to couples counseling where our first session, my partner announced that when the therapist asked us to tell us a little bit about herself, she said, oh, I'm an alcoholic. And I went, what? You know, we've been living together for 
three years and I didn't realize my partner was an alcoholic. So that is a manageable. I was in the food, she was in her substance, and I am so grateful that my partner is an alcoholic because if I didn't hear those words, that was like the first blip on my radar about addiction because I didn't have a lot of exposure to addiction other than the food. And I didn't realize that food was a substance that one could be addicted to. That little piece of information about chemical dependency and going to outpatient as a family member supporting an addict, I recognized myself in every talk we had, every description we had of the addict. I do with food what an alcoholic does with alcohol, what a heroin addict does with heroin. Those substances affect my body in sugar, flour, refined carbohydrates, quantity, certain behaviors, feeling full, feeling sedated after I've eaten and I feel relaxed. Those are feelings that I get from the food, and I really do believe that those trigger a chemical reaction in my body, just like alcohol affects alcoholics adversely, but non-alcoholics can drink it and it's not a problem. So some people can probably eat wheat thins. I'm not one of them. And as soon as I recognize that, that I can't even take one into my body because it could set me up for these cravings, that I'm better off not eating it, that was like the shift. That was for me the core to this program that I have a substance abuse problem and my substance mm-hmm. is food. And people think it's cute. They go, oh, ha, 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 I'm a chocolate addict too. You know, and I'm like, no, really, I have an addiction <laughs> to these foods. And so they're like, well, just have a bite. It's the holidays. Like, no, you don't understand. I can't have one bite. I can't eat it moderately, so I'm better off if I don't eat it at all. And to actually hit a bottom with those foods, to be in so much pain with this yo-yo dieting and this constantly gaining... And to have it relieved, to have the experience of trying this program. I didn't believe in God. I, I tried it. My sponsor said, you know, try these things. I didn't, wasn't on board with them. I thought they were weird. I didn't understand what she was talking about. But I wanted the energy I felt in these rooms. I wanted relief from that, that wrestling match or that tug-of-war game with food. And it helps me to think about program like fellowship and higher power and 12 steps that's like my team. We're on one side of the rope, pulling a tug of war against the disease. And the disease is really strong. And if I'm trying to pull on the other side by myself, the disease is going to pull me in and I'm going to get reeled in and I'm going to fall flat on my face and be like stuck in the disease. But if I access my higher power, if I access the support in these rooms, if I access fellows, if I use the tools, if I talk to sponsors, if I work with sponsees, all of these things help me combat that heavy pull in that other direction towards the food. The food will always be there, and that rope will always be in my hands. I never get to say, okay, game over. <laughs> Rope's gone, and I don't have to worry about it. I, I am stuck for the rest of my life in a, in a tug-of-war game with food. And in a way, I'm so relieved to know that, to understand that. Like, that first step was, like, understanding. Like, I think I've heard people say the first step, you come to... Uh, no, you come to the meeting. The second step, you come to believe in the third step. You come to, you come, you come to believe. Something like that. It's the first, second, and third. I can't. I accept it. God can, or something else can, not me by myself, so a power greater than me. It doesn't have to be God. I've come to believe in a higher power that I'm calling God, but in the beginning it was me and another compulsive overeater. It was a power greater than me alone. Me and a sponsor. Mm -hmm. Me in a room full of compulsive overeaters was a power greater than me, and that's what I use as my higher power energy in the beginning. And then three, I think I'll let my higher power try to, I can't 
my higher power can, I'll let my higher power take care of these things and turn it over. And I was not used to turning stuff over. You know, I, I was used to trying to micromanage and take care of it and fix it all for myself and for you and for everybody else. And, you know, um, and I couldn't. And it was a real eye-opener to look at unmanageable and insanity. Like, I didn't think I was unmanageable and insane. But I was, like, 240 pounds and on my way up trying to diet. So... I think that's insanity. And, you know, the insane behaviors, they, they manifest in different ways now. I don't stop at gas stations on my way home, fill up the car with gas, and then fill up my stomach with three bags of junk food. I don't do that anymore. What I do want to do is I want to overeat abstinent food. I want quantity. I want, I could binge on, I have binged on Brussels sprouts, okay? I know some people here probably think they're disgusting, but I, I could eat any vegetable in excess, it's that more fullness and the hand-to-mouth and it's impulse, like feeding that impulse. And the only way I know to stop this disease and to stay stopped is to work the steps, to, to get relief from the emotions that make me want to eat, to look them in the eye, figure out what they are, recognize these are old patterns of behavior. We've been doing this a long time. It wasn't helpful then. Still not helpful. And then how do I not do it? I ask for help because I can't do it on my own, just like I couldn't stop eating on my own. And the humility that comes with asking for help opens the door for me for so many other possibilities. Cultivating a spiritual life, praying and meditating, reading from the big book, staying close to the big book, talking to other fellows, talking to sponsors, talking to sponsees, going to meetings, doing service, all those things we pitched about tonight at this meeting. Those tools are there for a reason because we can't stay abstinent if we don't use those tools. So as much as I'm using the tools, that's how much freedom I get. The less I'm using the tools and the less I'm working my program, the more the food is on my back. It's always there. It never goes away. It's just waiting for me to rest on my laurels, you know, they say in the big book, or just to put down my guard a little bit, and to like fire some people from the my team, you know, not go to meetings, not do service, not work with sponsors, sponsee, and then all of a sudden I'm pulling the rope by myself, and I need more strength than that, and I don't have it, so the disease gets stronger when I, I guess every day I'm not working on my program, I'm working on my relapse, mm. and, um, and I don't want to relapse, because I don't know if I'll ever get off those foods again. I don't know where the willingness has come from, but it's as long as I have it, I'm going to cling to it. Like, they cling to like, the drowning cling to a lifeboat. So, um, I guess that's all. I, I don't know um, if there's anything else that I would say other than keep coming back. It works. And I usually say it's working because it's still working. So, thanks. Mm-hmm.